the Yurikala Bach petitions are absolutely among the founding documents of our nation, but uh, probably we know more about the US Declaration of Independence just over 60 years ago last month. They were delivered from northeast Arnhem Land to Parliament House in Canberra, starting a cascade of efforts to achieve civil and land rights for First Nations people. Six decades later, the Yonlu uh, people of northeast Arnhem Land are still fighting to be heard, from a native title to a little song you may have heard called Treaty. Claire Wright is Professor of History and Public Engagement at La Trobe, and she's uh, writing a book on the history of the Bark Petitions. Before we get stuck into our chat, a note for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island listeners, we will be talking about people who have died. Claire, welcome back. You described the legacy of the, of the Bark Petitions as extraordinary. 60 years on, how well is that legacy understood? Philip, unfortunately, I've got to say that it is very misunderstood, not so much because there's misinformation, but because there's not enough information. Um, I've been asked by many, many people what my next project is um, after the Eureka book and the suffrage book, you know, what comes next. And I tell them that I've been working on this history of the Yitakala Bark petitions and their faces just go blank. Um, There's just nothing there. Uh, I'd be interested to know how many of your own listeners have have, um, a flash of recognition when they hear talk of the Yitakala Bark petition. Do we know exactly how many petitions there were in total? Well, we do now. Um, I I can very um, happily say that this is something that my research has been able to put to bed, the speculation on how many petitions there were. You'll you'll find a number of different um, guesses floating around on the internet, but... I've had the extraordinary advantage as an historian of having access to an archive that has never before been seen. And that's because I was able to track down the son of the superintendent, um, the the main missionary, who was looking after Yudakala Mission in 1963, the Reverend Edgar Wells and his wife Anne Wells, who were so muddled up in this whole incident. I managed to find their son basically by going through the phone book and and bringing people up. Um, It turned out that that Jim Wells lived very close to me in Melbourne and after us Melburnians were finally let out of lockdown, I was able to go and spend a few months in his home and just rifling through the treasure trove that is his garage and uh, one of the rooms of his house. He'd closed the door on Edgar's archive when Edgar passed and hadn't been in it again. And it's now that we've this absolute uh, eyewitness evidence that I can say with all confidence that there were four bark petitions. Claire, can I have some clarity on the appearance? Can you describe them for us? So the four bark petitions themselves are cut from bark uh, of the Gareka trees uh, that are the Darwin stringy bark. They um, are uh, about a foot wide and a foot and a half long 
And in the centre of each of these four pieces of bark, there is pasted a paper document that was typed and there are words in both English and Yongumata, uh, a version of Yongumata that had been recently, only recently turned into um, a written script by the missionary Beulah Lowe. And then around the outside of that paper that is that is pasted in the middle are traditional bark paintings, painted in ochres using traditional colours and all the traditional symbols, the minchi um, and the, the patterning, the animals, the, the people, the wanga, ancestral spirits are represented on the outside of these four barks. So each of them is different. There are different animals, different stories that are being told on them. They're painted by four different artists. And interestingly, what is quite innovative and and certainly goes against former Yongle practice is that the barks themselves don't fall into the moiety system. In northeast Arnhem Land, the Yongle have two, a dual moiety system of Dua and Yiddicha, and everything falls into those two moieties, every tree, every plant, every star, every song, every person, every place, accords to one of those two moieties. But these paintings are mixed up. Um, I, I was told that by Dr. Yunipingu, um, who I spent many, many hours talking to over the last 10 years about uh, these bark petitions and the artworks, and he confirmed to me what other Yongu also told me, which was that the, the moieties are all mixed up. And why this is incredibly important is because it represents the fact that the Yongu people were coming together in, in a in a... In, with a pan identity, an understanding of themselves as a group of people who had uh, a protest to make, who had a statement to make to Parliament, as opposed to the 13 clans of the area, which is how they had always interacted together. It's a sign of unity and, and a coming together of the people. Well, to speak well they in one needed voice. unity at the time, didn't they? Because their land was uh, under attack, effectively. That's right. So so it's important to understand what the Bach petitions were petitioning against, what was going on up there in that year, 1963, when the petitions were put to Parliament, was that the Australian government had excised uh, a chunk of land that had been set aside as part of the Arnhem Land Reserve um, in northeast Arnhem Land, on the, in, in the Gove Peninsula, it's now called, we know it as the Gove Peninsula, in order to grant mining leases to bauxite companies. And this was all done without any consultation with local people, um, without any form of warning that it was going to happen. The local missionaries on the ground didn't know it was going to happen. And for the Yongo, this act of coming onto their land and and taking land and taking something from the land was against Yongul law and all the principles of law and had broken Yongul law. So this was the Yongul's way of speaking to the Australian government to say, you have actually breached our rules of engagement. And yet uh, the response by at least one lofty public servant was absolutely contemptuous. The, uh, the Secretary of the Commonwealth Department of Territories dismissed them as a gimmick. That's right. This was one of my 
um, beautiful archival finds, one of those moments when you've been sitting in the National Archives for weeks on end and then suddenly you come across something. And, and this was a newspaper clipping from the 15th of August, 1963, so the day after the petition had been, the first petition had been put to Parliament by Jock Nelson, the member for, for the Northern Territory. And this clipping had gone to the Department of Territories and this senior public servant had stuck the clipping on a page and written next to it, I wonder who thought up this gimmick. And clearly not taking seriously in any way that what was going on here. But the response of Paul Hasluck, the Minister for Territories, wasn't much better. No, I mean, it was worse in many ways because the the, the, the Assistant Secretary's um, response was uh, to be kept in-house and that was just that was just a notation on a file that nobody was supposed to see in, in, except some pesky historian came along 60 years later and rifled through a file that hadn't been opened since 1963. However, Paul Hasluck, the Minister for Territories, got up in Parliament after Jock Nelson presented the petition and essentially rejected it, saying that this could not possibly be the genuine voice of the people because the signatories to this petition, there were 12 signatures on the bottom of the petition, he discovered that the names of the signatories were, belonged to nine men and three women and all of them were young people between the age of 18 and 30. And he said everybody knows that in Aboriginal culture uh, that they are um, gerontocracies, that the only people who hold any authority are the old men. So this is just some impressionable young people essentially being stirred up by those communists down south, those white communists down south, like the Federal Council for Aboriginal Advancement, um, that was uh, in that was led by Gordon Bryant, uh, the member for Wills, and and that these uh, young names to the petition were essentially just puppets, and and that was Hasluck's way of trying to dismiss the significance of this moment. What happened after that? Well, when the news of that got back to North East Arnhem Land, back to the Atakala Mission, the Yongle people were furious. Um, they they had gone through all of their own rules of diplomacy. Um, you know, they had a whole legal and political system that had been serving them perfectly well for 65,000 years. They had they had already been engaging with other outsiders, other foreigners, um, particularly the Macassans, who they'd been trading with and negotiating trade agreements and, and, and had diplomatic foreign relations with for over 500 years. Uh, the Japanese had also come by and, and they had been been dealing with outsiders, but nobody had ever treated them like this before, um, completely dismissing the entire idea that they had any sovereignty over their land, let alone a legal and political system that had chosen very carefully, according to their own laws, the, the 12 signatories to the petition. And so those people that had been chosen had been chosen precisely because they were what was considered within uh, the Yungle Rom, the law, to be the right people, but also because they were literate people. These young people had skills that the older Yungle had didn't have because they'd had the benefit of some missionary education and they could write their own names. So the Yungle also thought that they were doing what the Australian government would want them to do, which was to speak in their language, to write in their language. 
hence a second petition and enter stage left in probably, in my view, Arthur Colwell. Arthur Colwell was the leader of the opposition at this time. So Menzies was the Prime Minister, Colwell was the opposition leader. Colwell had been sent one of the petitions as well and as the opposition leader. And so Colwell then, two weeks later, 28th of August, puts his petition up, presents it to the House of Representatives, along with another petition that had been done in the interim by the old people who had all spent uh, a furious night, I loved writing this chapter of the book, a furious night going into a storeroom with a, a hurricane lantern and putting their thumbprints to a document where um, somebody who was literate wrote their name, they put their thumbprint um, in ink and across, and then that was witnessed by another literate Yolngal person. And there was also a white missionary, Doug Tuffin, who was there, and he witnessed a couple of the signatures as well. 33 of these men and women, all older um, senior leaders um, of the various clans. And so Corwell put his version of the Bark petition along with these thumbprints, the thumbprint petition, it's sometimes called now, to Parliament, and that one was accepted. And that led to Kim Beasley getting up and passing a motion to fulfil immediately one of the requests of the petition, which was to set up a select committee, a parliamentary committee, to go up to Arnhem Land and to see what was going on and to take evidence and to formally interview and consult with both Yongle people but also missionaries, members of the government, members of the Northern Territory Welfare Department, um, uh, mining industry people, everybody who was kind of a stakeholder in this particular um, battle for the peninsula. And so um, Beasley puts up this motion, it's passed, and that's exactly what happens. So the Bark petitions um, are significant in their own times for two reasons. One, they were the first petition ever put to the Australian Parliament that was written in an Australian language, Yongomata. And also, they were the first petition of any kind ever put to Parliament that led directly to a parliamentary inquiry. You've mentioned uh, the great uh, Dr. Yungnapingu earlier. And uh, I got to know him reasonably well going to Gama festivals year after year. Sadly, of course, he died earlier this year. I hadn't realised that he was only 15 years old at the time the uh, petitions were written. He, he was only 15. It's one of the um, the, the furfies and various half-truths about the petitions that fly around on the internet, um, the idea that that he contributed to the words or that he translated it or, or that he signed it, and none of those things are true. And um, you can see that he didn't sign it by looking at them yourself. Neither did his father sign it. His father was very involved as one of the senior leaders in choosing the people who did sign the petition. But, um, but Dr Unipi, Pingu himself was not involved in it in any way. He told me that um, in our many hours of of interviews. Um, I'm a, an adopted member of, um, of by his fourth wife, um, so I'm part of his family and his clan. I was at his funeral earlier this year, and I've been uh, spent a great deal of time in Arnhem Land and 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 with him. And he was always adamant that he was too young, that he watched and that his great skill was that he wanted to learn 
He was there watching for the select committee when they came up to take their evidence, but it wasn't until 1968 that he started to become involved once he was um, five years older and had already been away to, to Bible College in Brisbane that he became a translator and worked alongside his father in, in a greater leadership capacity in the Gove Land Rights Trial. You tell us his rather poignant words late in life when he he described the petitions as a proud but sad symbol of my people's fight for their land. Proud and sad. Proud because, as uh, like all Yongle, they're incredibly proud of, of these documents and of the fact that their people have been so prominent in the land rights movement that these documents themselves did lead, in fact, to the land rights movement. Sad because what they tried to do, which was essentially to be consulted, to have a hand in the way that any development happened in the area, um, it's very important to, to, to realise that the petition wasn't, there's nothing in the petition that says they want to stop mining. It's not an, it's not an anti-mining protest. It was a pro-consultation, a pro-voice. Listen to us. We are the ones who understand and know our land. You need to negotiate with us, partly because that is how our law works, but it's also how um, we need to feel safe and secure on on our home territory. And so it was that that was never done. That was never followed through. And, and that's the, the, the sad part of it was that everything went along exactly in the way that white people wanted things to go along and Yongle voices were never heard. And yet you can clearly draw a thread from the Bark petitions all the way to the Uluru Statement and the voice referendum. Well, it's really, really hard to be writing this book now, um, to be celebrating the 60-year anniversary of the Bark petitions in 2023, in the year that we're holding the referendum on a voice and to not draw parallels between the fact that what the Yongle people were, were trying to do was to be heard, to have a voice, to have a say in their destiny, to have a say in the, the, the laws and the regulations that were going to have a direct impact on their livelihoods, um, on future generations of Yongle people, of their children, of their grandchildren. They say this quite clearly. It's very hard not to to read that, to be studying that in such detail and not think about the generous invitation of the Uluru Statement for the nation to walk together shoulder to shoulder with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in creating a more just and reconciled future following the roadmap of Voice Treaty Truth and it would absolutely break my heart um, to see this referendum go down knowing that this could be the moment where so many of these proud but sad um, historical legacies of the past, like the Bark Petitions, could actually finally in some way be put to rest, that we can say that what couldn't be done 60 years ago can be done now and that we are a more mature nation and that we can answer that open and generous invitation in a way that 
the Bach petition could not be heard at the time. Thanks, Claire. Claire Wright, Professor of History at La Trobe. Good to talk to you again. Claire is currently writing a book on the history of the Bach petitions, the third instalment of her Democracy Trilogy to be published in 2024 by text when I hope she'll return to the program. And uh, this history is also being turned into a documentary directed by Larissa Barrent. So keep an eye out for that as well. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.